uh, yeah, my unlocked moment was sort of an example of a, uh, absence makes the heart grow fonder, if you will. Not doing research that convinced me that I needed to do research. So that, that's how I came to change my focus from my uh, childhood dream of being a full-time practicing physician to being a physician scientist. I sat down with him and I said, Dad, you know, I've never really failed at anything before, but I, I just can't do this. I don't have a knack for it and it's not working. And I just don't know what to do. And he was so reassuring. He said, look, he, he called me Bobby. He said, Bobby, look, you always dreamt of being a physician, a doctor. This is just, uh, you know, this is two years. You're not going to Vietnam, do your time. Enjoy your family, and as soon as it's over, you'll go back, you'll finish your clinical training, and you'll become the doctor you always wanted to be. Well, I left, it was like a burden lifted off my back. I went back to the NIH feeling so relieved about the whole situation and my father's advice. And that was the last conversation I ever had with him. Next thing, I knew it was like getting a call from Dr. Feibusch that my father had died suddenly of his fourth heart attack. As I found myself being drawn almost against my will into almost full-time research, there were days I would get up and look at myself in the mirror and I'd say, what's happening to you? Dad died believing you were going to be the physician that you and he always dreamed of. And now you're spending 90% of your time in the lab. And there was a real resistance there, almost like I had made a contract with my father. And a promise, if you will. Now I wasn't doing it. And as I said, it was almost sort of like an irresistible impulse. I mean, I never felt I was deciding to do that. I just felt like I can't resist this. This is my fate. This is my destiny. Well, when we looked in the databanks, oh my God, our protein, which had this very unique architecture of a protein chain, which wove through the plasma membrane seven times like a snake, looked just like Rhodopsin. It was the only other protein that had that structure. So in that moment, when we saw that the beta-adrenergic receptor for adrenaline looks just like the molecule that allows us to perceive light, that was a eureka moment because we said, oh my God, that means probably that every other receptor which works through these G proteins is going to look like this. That was a true eureka moment because I remember saying to myself, oh my God, this isn't just a beta receptor. This is a pervasive principle that's going to explain a huge amount of biology. Did I perceive, whatever, 86, it's so almost 40 years ago, did I perceive what that would lead to in terms of drug development over the next four? No. 
Not at that time, not even close. And I can tell you, I in the year I won, I had picked up absolutely no buzz, even though I know lots of people at the Karolinska Institute and this and that. The other is the fact that I won in chemistry, not in medicine. Well, Monday had come and gone. Okay, so the medicine prize had been announced. It wasn't me. So I can assure you on Wednesday morning, uh, I was not sleeping by the phone. All of a sudden at five o'clock, the phone rings and I sleep with earplugs. Uh, so I couldn't have heard it anyway, but the phone's right behind the bed. My wife picked it up. And first thing she had to do was wake me. So she gives me an elbow and then I look up and I pull the earplug out. So what's going on? She says that somebody's calling from Stockholm for Professor Lefkowitz. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. If you've been listening recently, then you will remember the wonderful Dr. Ruth Gautian, author of The Success Factor, who interviewed world-class leaders in their respective fields about the mindset and skill set of peak performers. I'm indebted to Dr. Ruth for introducing me to today's guest, Dr. Robert Lefkowitz, one of the leading physician scientists on the planet. If you've ever experienced the so-called fight-or-flight response, you'll know about the rush of adrenaline you get when something triggers your sense of fear. Your heart beats faster, your blood pressure goes up, your breathing gets more rapid. Why? Because the adrenaline that your body produces interacts with receptors on cells around the body. Like a key in a lock, the adrenaline binds and triggers a response in those cells which leads to all those fight-or-flight symptoms you experience. And equally, you can block those receptors. Ever heard of beta blockers or antihistamines? Well, they're blocking those same receptors to dampen down the body's natural response. The thing is, we didn't always know how it was that cells knew about the world around them. It was Dr. Robert Lefkowitz and his team that first isolated and studied cell receptors and later discovered their protein structure. Today, between 30 and 50% of all the prescription drugs in the world act by activating or inhibiting the receptors of the type that Dr. Lefkowitz and his team isolated and characterized. For this discovery, he has received more than 70 awards, and in 2012, he and his former trainee, Dr. Brian Kabilka, were together awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Dr. Robert is the Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Medicine and Professor of Biochemistry at Duke University in North Carolina, 
where he's been an investigator since the mid-1970s. He's led an extraordinary life, and I know he's a master storyteller. I can't wait to hear more about his journey in medicine, science, and life, and to hear his reflections on the unlocked moments of remarkable clarity he's experienced along the way. Dr. Robert Lefkowitz, it is indeed my great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Thank you so much for that and for that uh, lovely introduction uh, and a crystal clear explanation uh, of, my, uh, of my work in a, in a capsule. Couldn't have done it better myself. Thank you so much. Well, it was about 20 years ago that I was at medical school studying uh, the, the work that you'd done. Um, so I've, I've managed to retain a little bit of that knowledge over, over the years. So your memoir is entitled, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Stockholm, The Adrenaline-Fueled Adventures of an Accidental Scientist. Tell me more about the accidental scientist. Well, I use the term accidental scientist. In, a, in another uh, autobiographical essay I wrote a number of years ago, I referred to myself as a serendipitous scientist, same general idea. Uh, and the thought behind that is that Unlike your own meandering career, uh, it was clear to me by age seven or eight uh, what I would do with my life, which would become a practicing physician. I was absolutely enthralled by my family physician, a man named Dr. Joseph Feibusch, uh, in the Bronx. He was a general practitioner, uh, and I, I was just taken with the guy. I mean, he would come to the house if somebody was ill, he would lay on hands produce all manner of magical instruments from a black bag. He'd let me play with the stethoscope, listen to my own heart. I said, and he'd make you feel better uh, and prescribe medicine. I said, that's what I want to do. So I would say by the time I was seven or eight, I really, of course, I didn't know the term or the concept, but in retrospect, I felt a calling to the practice of medicine as a young child. Uh, and I remained very, very focused on that goal. Uh, which made my path very easy and clear. I never questioned what I was going to do. Went to a special public high school for uh, gifted and talented students in uh, New York City, uh, students who were interested in STEM, science, technology, uh, called the Bronx High School of Science, then on to Columbia College as a pre-medical student, and then on to Columbia Medical School. And to house staff, that is internship and residency, uh, in the late 60s at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center, uh, and would have gladly gone on to fulfill my life's dream of practicing medicine. Uh, and in particular, I had decided on cardiology uh, by that point uh, for the rest of my life, except for a serendipitous situation, namely, the Vietnam War was raging. Uh, I graduated in 1966 and finished my uh, internship and residency in 68. Uh, those were peak years of the Vietnam War. There was at the time a lottery draft for all men over 18 in the United States. But for physicians, there was no lottery. There was a separate draft called the doctor draft. And the way it worked is all medical students were deferred until they graduated. Then you would get a further two-year deferral uh, year of internship and a year of residency. And then you went into the armed services for two years, everybody. Uh, and that meant you were drafted into either the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, or the Public Health Service. 
And for the first three services, you could be assured that one of your two conscripted years would be spent in Vietnam. But for the public health service, there was uh, the possibility that you might serve in the United States, not the certainty, but the possibility. And if you were lucky enough, not only would you serve in the United States, but you would be assigned to one of their research institutions like the CDC or the NIH, amongst others. Well, you can imagine getting those assignments was extraordinarily competitive. Everybody wanted them for the obvious reasons. Uh, so they were able to sort of pick the best and the brightest. I graduated first in my class in medical school, had very good recommendations. And so I was able to get the uh, appointment in the public health service and be assigned to the NIH, where I spent 20% of my time taking care of patients who were involved in clinical studies. And 80% of the time, I was assigned to a basic research laboratory, uh, where I proceeded for a year or a year and a half uh, to fail miserably uh, at my assignments. Uh, this was a new experience for me. I had never failed, much less in a protracted way, at anything I had set my mind to before. And again, I wasn't there because I wanted to learn how to do research. I was there because I didn't want to go to Vietnam. Uh, and so that just basically confirmed my uh, conclusion, which I had already reached, that I wanted nothing to do with research. And so I arranged f uh, at the end of my two-year assignment to return to and complete my clinical training in medicine and cardiology uh, at the now at the Massachusetts General Hospital, which is one of the main teaching hospitals at Harvard. Now, as luck would have it, uh, during the final six months at the NIH, my research began to show some fruit. Uh, I published my first couple of papers, uh, kind of felt good about it and liked it. My mentors, and I had two, uh, were uh, more impressed than I was with my potential, and they tried to get me to stay on for additional work. But I, I was far from convinced that research should have anything to do with my career, but I was beginning to at least consider it. So with my family, and I had several young children by then, we moved to Boston in 1970 to take up the residency. And for the first six months, I threw myself into the clinical work as I had before. I loved clinical medicine and I frankly was damn good at it. Uh, and so for the next six months was full time, you know, 24 seven clinical medicine. And I really enjoyed it. But, and here was really, I guess what you would call my unlock moment. Uh, I realized something was missing, okay. And at first it wasn't clear to me. I, I just wasn't getting quite the same full fulfillment, if you will, that I had previously from the day-to-day -day work uh, with patients. And then it, it occurred to me one day that, you know, what was missing was the research. I just missed the challenge, the daily challenge of designing experiments, wrestling with hypotheses, getting things that weren't working to work, etc. And so in that moment, I realized, without knowing exactly what it meant, that I was going to need to reincorporate some element of research back into my career. Uh, and so for the second six months of, the, uh, of my residency year, uh, I arranged to work in the laboratory 
of uh, a very noted uh, scientist there who was also chief of the cardiology division. So he was a physician scientist. Now, what was interesting about this was that this was not permitted. Okay, I was supposed to spend the second six months uh, of my uh, residency doing, quote, electives, but they meant clinical electives, you know, like cardiology, endocrinology, whatever. Uh, because we were paid with clinical dollars, so you, you couldn't just work in a research lab. But it was really ironic because earlier I, you couldn't get me to do research, and now I was breaking all the rules to do research. And so I went to his laboratory, and for those six months, did full-time research, basically. Then I entered the cardiology fellowship, <clears throat> and over the next two years, uh, combined research with uh, clinical work. Uh, and by the time I finished, I had been offered a job at Duke, uh, which I took up uh, as a junior uh, professor. Uh, and by then, I was pretty much well. I was convinced. I was convinced that I would be a physician scientist, and that I would spend a significant amount of time doing research. Just how much I didn't know. But uh, yeah, my unlocked moment was when I was sort of an example of a, uh, absence makes the heart grow fonder, if you will. Uh, it was not doing research that convinced me that I needed to do research. So that, that's how I came to change my focus from my uh, childhood dream of being a full-time practicing physician to being a physician scientist. And when you think about that moment of, of clarity, how vivid today is your memory of the actual moment of, of, of that clarity? Can you remember where you were, what was happening for you? It's not one of those moments. Uh, I think I can pin it down to uh, probably a period of several weeks right around the holiday break. Uh, I had probably had a little time off around Christmas and New Year's uh, at the end of those first six months of residency. It was somewhere during that, but it was not like uh, certain other situations in life where I know the exact moment. It's interesting. When I you know, worked for a long time now outside of the science world, I find it quite difficult to bring to life for people that have never been in a research lab what it feels like to be working for day after day, week after week, month after month, and your experiments not working. That was my experience for two and a half years, probably, of my, of my PhD. To be honest with you, if people are honest, that's everybody's experience. That is the nature of scientific investigation. And, you know, the very famous probably scientist isn't the right word, let's say inventor, uh, Thomas Edison, created so many inventions and patents. And he basically once said, you know, some people would say I've had 10,000 failures in my career, he says. It's not quite true, he said. I, I know I've discovered 10,000 things that don't work. Yeah, that was my experience. I remember during that first 12 or 18 miserable months at the NIH where nothing worked for me. Uh, I, and my father died suddenly and unexpectedly during that time. And in retrospect, I think I was depressed uh, at some point during that. And uh, I was having lunch one day and uh, a senior scientist, not one of my mentors, but his lab was down the hall and he had kind of taken a liking to me. And he knew things were going poorly and I was very unhappy. He sat down next to me 
and struck up a conversation. And at one point he said to me, Bob, do you have any idea what fraction of a typical scientist's experiment work in the sense of being productive and moving the project forward? I said, no. He says, you know, it's probably as little as 1%. He said, but now let's consider a potential Nobel laureate. I mean, top of the line, best you're going to get. Do you have any idea what fraction of, of their experiments might work? I said, no. He said, you know, it could be as high as 2%. And I took that to heart. So if, even the best of the best, 98, 99% of everything you do ain't going to work. And that's one of the toughest things about doing science. It almost drove me out. It sounds like it helped drive you out. And it's, you know, one of the main things you do as a mentor, and my mentors did for me, is keep people afloat. Uh, now, once you begin to accumulate some successes, that helps. It takes the pressure off. You have something you can fall back on. I remember when I was a kid, I used to play a lot of softball. Uh, and I was pretty good. What I found, though, is let's say the first time I came up, I struck out. Second time in the game, maybe I grounded out. Third time, foul ball. Well, the time I came up for the fourth at bat at the end of the game, 0 for 3, you could almost predict I was going to not get a hit. But let's say I got a nice hit the first time at bat. Oh, my God. I was relaxed. I was confident. And I was probably going to go three for four, something like that. Uh, so the same thing I found in the lab. Once I started getting some hits, uh, I kind of relaxed. Uh, I got more patient, you know, et cetera. So a little success helps. But then, you know, for the junior people, until they get that first success, in my case, it was probably close to 18 months. Wow, it's brutal. That's a tough time. So bring me more into now the journey at Duke when you started to get into into the work that, that made your name. Right. So uh, the first year, I would say I probably spent about 60% of my time setting up my new laboratory and trying to recruit people to work with me. And as much as 40 or 45% of my time was spent teaching clinical medicine, which I still very much enjoy. But then something interesting happened. We made a couple of discoveries toward the end of the first year, which really kick-started my program, okay? We discovered certain new methods uh, or developed certain new methods. And now the research just took off. And as I look back on it, and even at the time, I had this almost mystical feeling that I was kind of riding a wild horse and the horse was the research. And it was no longer under my control. I, I pictured myself hanging onto the horse's neck uh, and being flung wildly around, but just trying not to get thrown off. And very quickly, within the next couple of years, I went from spending 60% of my time in research to spending probably 90%. Okay. Not because I ever made a conscious decision to do that. It just happened. And, uh, you know, some people would say it was destiny, it was fate, whatever. There was some resistance on my part. And there's a, a very personal story uh, that goes with this. And I tell it in the book. 
I had been at the NIH for about five or six months uh, in 1968, started July 1. My father had had his first heart attack at age 50, okay? I was to inherit uh, his predisposition to coronary artery disease, but that's a separate story. Anyway, uh, on December 17th, I was sitting in the clinic and he dropped dead. Uh, and I got a call and went to New York. Well, the event was significant for me, obviously, in, in a number of ways. One is I had lost my dad, who I was so close to. But the other was that at Thanksgiving, just like three weeks before, two weeks before, I had traveled with my wife and young children to New York for the holiday. And I had a long talk with my dad. I was an only child. I was very close to my father, much closer than I was to my mother. He was a, you know, a wonderful guy. He was an accountant, uh, knew nothing of science or medicine, but just had wonderful, good common sense. I sat down with him and I said, Dad, you know, I've never really failed at anything before, but I, I just can't do this. I don't have a knack for it and it's not working. And I just don't know what to do. And he was so reassuring. He said, look, he, he called me Bobby. He said, Bobby, look, you always dreamt of being a physician, a doctor. This is just, uh, you know, this is two years. You're not going to Vietnam. Do your time. Enjoy your family. And as soon as it's over, you'll go back, you'll finish your clinical training, and you'll become the doctor you always wanted to be. Well, I left. It was like a burden lifted off my back. I went back to the NIH feeling so relieved about the whole situation and my father's advice. And that was the last conversation I ever had with him. Next thing I knew was I getting a call from Dr. Feibusch that my father had died suddenly of his fourth heart attack. How does that impact the story? Well, it impacts the story because as I found myself being drawn almost against my will into almost full-time research. There were days I would get up and look at myself in the mirror and I'd say, what's happening to you? Dad died believing you were going to be the physician that you and he always dreamed of. And now you're spending 90% of your time in the lab. And there was a real resistance there, almost like I had made a contract with my father and a promise, if you will. Now I wasn't doing it. And, you know, I don't know how you work on something like that, but I think at some level I worked on it. Probably took another five years till I completely was able to give myself over to that. But I did. And as I said, it was almost sort of like an irresistible impulse. I mean, I never felt I was deciding to do that. I just felt like, I can't resist this. This is my fate. This is my destiny. It's just all happening. Uh, so that's how he played into this at the end. It's always an interesting question for me with, with, with scientists. And you, you, you talk to people about why they ended up in the field that they ended up in. And sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes they'll say, you know, I have a disease in my family. I have a, a relative who had this particular thing. I wanted to study it. I had searched out the person who was studying it. That's why I went and studied other people will go, I happen to be at this university. At this university, that's what they study in the lab. 20 years later, that's what I'm doing. It's not particularly because I went, I want to do that. 
for you, how did you end up in, in, in the space that ultimately was, was, was your focus? Remarkably fortunate there. The project that I was assigned when, so I had two mentors, Jesse Roth and Ira Paston, both very successful, both very young. They were both in their late 30s, although I thought they were like old guys. I mean, what, you know, if you're in your 20s, uh, people who are 50, 10, 15 years older are old guys. So it never occurred to me just how young they were, both physician scientists. And they were endocrinologists. And they had the idea that there might be real things, which would dis- had been discussed in pharmacology for 100 years, called receptors, which is not a particularly popular concept. And so they set me to work to try to find a receptor for a particular hormone called ACTH, or adrenocorticotropic hormone, a hormone secreted by the pituitary gland, which stimulates the adrenals to make cortisol and other uh, steroid hormones. And uh, nobody had ever done anything like that. So that's the other, for another thing. I mean, I, I, didn't, I had no context or perspective to understand just how challenging the problem was they put before me. I mean, but I eventually cracked it and developed a new form of assay that did not prove, but added weight to the idea there might be such a thing biochemically as a receptor. And that's where the work stopped. So several years later, when uh, I came to, well, even before Duke, when I was at the Mass General Hospital and I decided to you know, try research again, I liked this receptor concept, but I was busy becoming a young academic cardiologist. I didn't want to study a hormone like ACTH. So I tried to say, well, what? What kind of receptor might I try to identify? And uh, the idea of adrenaline uh, was very clear because uh, drugs called beta blockers had just been introduced. They were called beta blockers. It's an interesting story in itself because there was a scientist called Raymond Alquist, a pharmacologist, who, based on some very interesting physiological experiments in the mid-1950s, had proposed that there, there might be two different types of receptors for adrenaline, which he called alpha and beta adrenergic receptors, adrenergic from adrenaline. But his idea, when he called these things receptors, he wasn't really thinking of discrete molecules. He, and it was just some vague concept. And in fact, in 1973, the year I came to Duke, he and I participated in a symposium where I laid out my fantasy of proving the existence of these receptors uh, and isolating them and characterizing them. Uh, and that was published. And in, in uh, I forget the name of the, the journal. But anyway, he, he published an essay as a discussant of my paper in which he basically called me arrogant for thinking that I actually could do such a thing. He said, because, look, we all know that there's no such thing as receptors. They're just a concept that we use to organize data and the fact that some compounds are more efficacious than others, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, so I decided uh, as a budding cardiovascular person that I wanted to study receptors for adrenaline, okay, because they're very important in cardiovascular disease. 
But so on the one hand, I was fortunate because I had been introduced to the concept and the possibility that these things existed and that, you know, I saw a way forward experimentally. On the other hand, I picked the type of receptor I wanted to study. It turned out that that was the most, probably the single most important, even prescient decision that I made uh, in retrospect, because you have to pick a good model system and you have no way of knowing in advance what's a really good model system. And it turned out that the so-called beta adrenergic receptor for adrenaline, which I chose for a variety of reasons, uh, and there were some scientific reasons as well as the sort of emotional attachment to something of cardiovascular significance, because there were many, many different adrenaline analogs uh, and compounds available uh, that had been used over the years. Uh, and I knew I was going to have to do a lot of chemistry uh, to develop various tools. And I, I would need uh, these pre-existing compounds to do that. So it was a mixture of, you know, what I thought would be feasible uh, and what I thought would be, you know, from a career perspective, uh, useful. For the listeners who, who, who are not scientists, to discover a receptor or to discover the receptor, is that a moment? Was there a moment when you're like, I've just seen this thing on a, on a slide or an image or something? Or is it a combination of multiple sort of little gains over a period of time? Both. So if the fulfillment lay just in the true eureka moments, even for a Nobel laureate, they're few and far between. They do exist. Not all that often, but they have. So what sustains you are the many, many small discoveries along the way. And something I, I often tell my trainees, and, and they get it, is that every time you do an experiment and you get data, you're the first person in the world. I mean, assuming you didn't drop tubes on the floor so you have no data. Every time you, you actually get data, you're the first person in the world to know that. And that's a little eureka moment. Oh, look at this. Now, it may not be of any great import, but hey, as you confront that data right there and look at it, you're the first person who ever saw that. And that's, you know, that, that's really great. But every once in a while, you really do have a eureka moment. Uh, and I've had several. One in particular stands out in 1986. We had spent 15 years proceeding from having no tool to even approach the receptors to developing assays to measure them, see them, tools to purify these extraordinarily rare proteins to homogeneity techniques for breaking the protein up into little pieces which we could sequence, and then actually using those little pieces of sequence to devise, devise certain probes which allowed us to clone the gene for the receptor. And from the sequence of the gene, we could deduce its amino acid sequence. Every step along the way was hell. Okay, with all kinds of obstacles be overcome. But then, okay, we finally finished the sequence. 
of the gene. And, you know, we had no way of knowing in advance what the receptor was going to look like, because to, to the best of our knowledge, as we were trying to sequence the gene for the beta adrenergic receptor, which is what we call a G-protein coupled receptor because it's coupled to another signaling protein called a G-protein. As far as we knew, this was the first such receptor that was ever being sequenced. So, in fact, I remember when we were working on the sequence, colleagues would say, uh, what do you expect it to look like? And I said, we have no idea. It's going to be the first. But then when we got the full sequence, and we looked to see in the data banks, was there any other protein that looked like that? Amazingly, out popped one other protein called rhodopsin. Rhodopsin is a visual protein that was known, in a sense, to be a G-protein coupled receptor, like the beta-adrenergic receptor. But nobody really thought of it as a receptor. Now, we look at it as a receptor the ligand or stimulant for which is a photons of light. Well, when we looked in the data banks, oh my God, our protein, which had this very unique architecture of a protein chain, which wove through the plasma membrane seven times like a snake, looked just like rhodopsin. It was the only other protein that had that structure. So in that moment, when we saw that the beta adrenergic receptor for adrenaline looks just like the molecule that allows us to perceive light. That was a eureka moment because we said, oh my God, that means probably that every other receptor which works through these G proteins is going to look like this. And we already knew that there were dozens of receptors, dopamine, uh, histamine, serotonin, glucagon, ACT. We already knew there were dozens of molecules that worked through G protein coupling, but we didn't know anything about their structure. I mean, the beta receptor was the first. So, in our very first paper, you know, we speculated that there would be a huge family of receptors that would look like this. And there was even evidence already at that time that our ability not only to see, but to taste things like bitter or sweet tastes uh, was being mediated by these kinds of receptors. So that was a true eureka moment because I remember saying to myself, oh my God, this isn't just a beta receptor. This is a pervasive principle that's going to explain a huge amount of biology. Did I perceive whatever, 86, it's so almost 40 years ago, did I perceive what that would lead to in terms of drug development over the next four? No, not at that time, not even close. That was one of the unexpected, uh, wonderful consequences of that. And that's often the case with basic research. The purpose of the research is I was not trying to develop drugs or come up with a discoveries that would lead to more drugs. I was just following this path. I was just hanging on to this horse, trying to figure out how this worked. Now, I always had the feeling that 
receptors had to be very important. They were the gateway to the cell. And so I always had the feeling that, well, you know, if we can figure out how this works, there got to be some important consequences of that. I'm not sure what the hell they are, but I mean, it's, it's got to be a good thing. And, you know, it's got to be a good thing for medicine and maybe something will come of it. But that wasn't the intent, not at all. Uh, it was a bit, really a basic research problem from the beginning. What's so interesting listening to you talk through that story, and I think about an outside of the science world, there's lots of people who feel like the way to make progress is to set a goal and then break up the steps on the way to that goal, and then you achieve the goal or you don't. You know, that, that's how you do things. And you're describing something really quite different. You're, you're saying, we had no idea of what the goal might have become, but we were hanging on to the tail of the horse and, and following where, where it went. So how does that translate outside of the, of, of the science world, do you think, in terms of, of, of how, you, how you make effective progress? I, I know before you've talked about you know, the art of a brilliant question. You know, so it's, it's less about deciding the answer you're aiming for, and it's more about just keep setting questions to, to guide your path. There's a lot of wisdom in, in, in trite little things. But, you know, there's this one thing about how when you reach the top of a, of a mountain, you're able to see the next mountain, uh, which you couldn't see until you got to the top of the first one. I mean, when I started out in say at Duke in 73. My goal was to develop techniques which, are, which would allow us to study the receptor. The idea of actually isolating them like a pretty distant thing. So I was just focused on developing these tools. Once we had the tools you know, at the top of a mountain, say, hey, with this tool, you know, I can label the receptors. I could begin to try to isolate them away from other cellular proteins. So then I started doing that. At that time, gene cloning was just the province of a few molecular biology labs. So I certainly wasn't thinking of cloning the gene. Okay. So now the goal became, well, let's purify them and see what we can do, learn about. Well, by the time we got them purified years later, now gene cloning had become a big thing. Now I was at the top of that mountain. Holy mackerel. We can clone this thing. We can find out what it looks like. And on and on and on. And it's still going on today. And what's the role of instinct and the role of luck and the role of data in, in fueling that kind of path that you, that you choose to take? So instinct plays a huge role. And it's not talked about very much. Unfortunately, people vary dramatically in how good their instincts are. And you learn this very quickly when a new trainee comes to the lab. Within a few months of their arrival, I, I know what I've got. I wish I could know in advance, but you can't. I mean, you know, you, this and that. Grades don't necessarily correlate with that. I've had, you know, people who were valedictorians of their class and top scores and, you know, they're creditable, but then they just don't have it. They just don't have that instinct for what's a good problem, for example, or what's a good way to proceed. That said, you can develop whatever instincts they've got. I mean, it's not like, you know, uh, you're born with a 
a certain level and that's it. No, I mean, it can be developed, it can be nurtured. Uh, and the best way to do that is by role modeling. Okay. I mean, I, I try to include my students in as many aspects of what I'm doing as possible so they can watch. There's so many things like, I mean, when do you, when you get an unexpected result, most of the time it's a diversion. You should just forget about it. But every once in a while it isn't. And it's a key to a big discovery. Uh, how do you have an instinct for which is which? Well, all I can, I can't explain that to you. But if you work with me closely for a few years, you'll see me confront such situations over and over again. And you'll see which way I go. Am I always right? No. But, you know, I got a higher batting average than some other people. So it's all a matter of sort of role modeling that. So the instinct is absolutely crucial. Luck or serendipity, also important. And I think there are things that you can do to maximize the chances of your being graced with serendipitous discovery. But, you know, there's this business of chance favors the prepared mind, another trite expression. But so how can you sort of encourage that? You know, it's interesting when you look at different people's careers, some scientists over and over again, they just seem to be lucky. So what is that? I mean, why is it that some people are keep being lucky over and over again? Others don't seem to be all that lucky. It's funny, one of the questions I often ask people who want to train with me, sometime in the middle of the interview, out of a clear blue spot, sky, I'll say to them, so tell me, uh, are you a lucky person? Uh, I, love to, I just love to see their answers to that. And they range everywhere from, oh, yeah, I mean, I am quite lucky. I've been quite blessed. And other people will tell you, nah, luck doesn't favor me. I have to fight my way through because I'm just not lucky. Well, who do you think I like to hire? Uh, I like the lucky ones because, of course, nobody's really lucky or unlucky. To some extent, you, you kind of make your luck. I mean, yeah, you win the lottery, that's luck. But I think in science, there are some things that you can do. I think everybody's has serendipity present them with opportunities from time to time. But you got to recognize, okay, one of the things that's helped me throughout my career is that I come to work every day with a tremendous sense of expectancy, okay? I don't know what it is, but every day when I come in, I have this feeling, you know, I think today might be the day. And you might say, for what? I don't know. Something. Something good's going to happen. I'm waiting for it. I'm looking for it. Every time somebody comes in with some data, you know, they say, hey, boss, you got a minute, I have a fun. Maybe this is it. Uh, so there's this tremendous sense of expectancy, which I don't do consciously. It's not something I work at as a discipline. It's just there. So I, I think there's a wonderful song from West Side Story, I think. I think it's West Side Story. I don't know if you know that that show. It goes something like, some things coming, come on in, come on in, around the corner. Da, 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 da. Sorry for the singing. Uh, but 
that's sort of way I, I have this feeling almost every day. There's something coming. It's just around the corner. I can't see it, but it'll be here soon. I have no idea what it is. So it's this kind of thing. I think that's probably one of the things that's helped me uh, appreciate serendipity a couple of times anyway. And I love that because I think that, again, from the outside in, I think often people perceive science as a very purely data-driven kind of mindset where you know it's not for you to have an opinion, it's not for you to have luck, it's not for you to apply judgment, it's for you to follow the data wherever it goes. And of course, that's critically important. You hit it. That the one part. So you got instinct, you got serendipity, and then once the instinct and the serendipity have blessed you with a discovery, now comes that making it into a story, developing all the data to convince people. That that's the third step. Mm, that's that. why I say you need all three. Tell me the story of what happened when Stockholm called to say that you got the Nobel Prize. That was an amazing day, and that's that's one of those moments you do remember the actual moment. Uh, a question I'm often asked is, "Were you surprised?" And the honest answer is yes and no. So, why no? Well, for a good twenty years, people have been saying to me, "You know, Bob, you're going to win the Nobel Prize. It's just a matter of time." But you know, the body of work is at that level. You're going to win, but it didn't happen for 20 years. And then twice, once in 1994 and once in 2004, 10 years apart, the Nobel Prize was awarded in a field very close to what I was doing. Uh, and in each case, only two people won the prize, and they can give it to up to three. So there was an empty place, if you will. And neither time was I included in those prizes. And that was a bit galling, actually. And then I went through a period, especially after the one in 2004, because the guys who got it in 2004 got it for uh, work on olfaction, smell. And the key to their discovery is that they had cloned a large subfamily of olfactory receptors, which are members of the same G-protein coupled receptor family. Their work was completely enabled by mine. Absent my work, they couldn't have done their work because they used certain gene cloning techniques that were based on using the sequences of six or eight receptors that I had already cloned and put in the literature. They used those sequences to very ingeniously design probes to clone the smell reserve. So absent my work, they couldn't have done that. And still, I didn't share that prize. So I was kind of discouraged by that. Not that you work to win a Nobel Prize. That's not the impetus day to day at all. But uh, I was kind of bummed out. And I figured that was the end of that. But then, you know, people started talking about it again in a few years. And uh, so for all the reasons, when I finally won, it wasn't a total surprise. People had been telling me for years that I was in the running and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, it was a surprise. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. One, there's a pretty active rumor mill in any given year about what's going on, even though they try to keep the deliberations very, very secret. And I can tell you, I in the year I won, I had picked up absolutely no buzz, even though I know lots of people at the Karolinska Institute and this and that. The other is 
the fact that I won in chemistry, not in medicine. And, uh, well, Monday had come and gone. Okay, so the medicine prize had been announced. It wasn't me. So I can assure you on Wednesday morning, uh, I was not sleeping by the phone. Uh, and all of a sudden, at 5 o'clock, the phone rings. And I sleep with earplugs, uh, so I couldn't have heard it anyway. But the phone's right behind the bed. My wife picked it up. And first thing she had to do was wake me. So she gives me an elbow. And then I look up and I pull the earplug out. So what's going on? She says, that somebody's calling from Stockholm for Professor Lefkowitz. Well, and I, first question I said is, am I sharing this with anybody? And they said, Kobilka, who was my former trainee, that put a tear to my eye. That was just icing on the cake. That was so nice. And then, okay, so told me we, we couldn't tell anybody until the announcement was made an hour later. So here we are, my wife and I. We can't tell anybody. It's dark. It's night. I make a pot of coffee. And she says to me, how are you feeling? I said, well, to tell you the truth, I said, you might expect I would be jubilant or elated. I said, more than anything else, what I feel is relieved. Uh, sort of like the monkey's off my back. Uh, and that, that was a wonderful realization that occurred very early after that call. And it's now 10 years on from, from, from then. What, what changed in, in the last decade after winning the Nobel Prize? Well, I'll tell you, it really does change your life. There's no doubt about it. It almost becomes part of your name, whether in professional circumstances or at cocktail parties. Everything you say is given more credence than it deserves. Uh, you are invited to bloviate about any subject. Uh, you wouldn't believe uh, the topics of the conferences I've been invited to address uh, and turn, which invitations I've turned down because I know nothing about the subject. I mean, so that's all kind of amusing. But I would say, by and large, it's all very positive. I have found in looking at colleagues who have uh, won the prize before me, who are good friends, many good friends who've won the Nobel Prize, they, they seem to follow two different paths after they win. One group, their research fairly quickly winds down and they go on to find other challenges, some in politics, some in administration all kinds of things. Others go on as if nothing had happened. I opted for the latter. Went back to the lab and just sort of kept doing what they were doing, that that's the way I would handle it. And I have. Other ways that things have changed. Well, yeah, I think those are the major things. The undergrads here have discovered me, which is a lot of fun. Uh, I'm in the medical center, which is part of the university. Uh, but in general, the trainees, the students that I have come from the graduate school and the medical school. But after the hoopla about my uh, winning the prize, uh, I got a lot of notoriety uh, on the campus. 
and I just have a load of fun with them. They're just a whole different breed, and uh, I love mentoring undergraduates. So that's that's been a positive thing. They're fantastic. Last question: If you're talking now to a physician scientist who's 18 months into their research and their research hasn't been working, and they're feeling down like you did, you know, when you were early in your research career, what do you say to them? Never give up. Uh, you may have to make adjustments to, to good experts and this and that. Uh, sometimes you do have to give up on a given project. Okay. And that's another art form that you can, again, you can't teach it. You can encourage certain instincts, but, you know, there's that old country Western song about the, the uh, gambler, I think, maybe we call the gambler. You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, uh, okay? And the best way to learn how to do that is from a mentor uh, who's got good instincts for that. Either stick with the project or, you know, switch over and shift gears. Uh, you know, somebody who went to the NIH the exact time as me, been a very brand ever since, more than 50 years, is Tony Fauci, whose name is now uh, a household word. He was, like me, graduated. The medical school, he from Cornell uh, in New York, me from Columbia in 66. We both went to the NIH in 68 uh, for the exact same program. Uh, he's sort of the poster child for, for a physician scientist. But there are many others. There are four of us uh, from my class at the NIH from 68 to 70. Four of us went on to win the Nobel Prize. Crazy stuff. Fantastic. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For Dr. Robert Lefkowitz, it was missing the lab that made him the proverbial accidental scientist and eventually propelled him all the way to the Nobel Prize. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then go to Amazon or your favorite bookshop and order your copy of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Stockholm, The Adrenaline-Fueled Adventures of an Accidental Scientist. Dr. Robert, it has been a real delight. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. My pleasure. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.